Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am pleased today to welcome Jacqueline B. Mondros and Joan Minieri, authors of Organizing for Power and Empowerment, The Fight for Democracy from Columbia University Press. Jackie and Joan, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you here. Thank you. Uh, So before we home in on the book itself, I want to ask if each of you might tell our listeners just a little bit about yourselves and your relevant background and what brought you to the project. Uh, And Jackie, will you start? Yes, sure. Um, So uh, in 2025, I will have been organizing for 50 years. Um, I started in Philadelphia with a group called Kensington Action Now. Um, fighting for uh, youth and jobs and better housing. So I guess nothing really changed in 15 years. Still doing it. Um, But um, after I got my doctorate, I started teaching organizing at various schools around the country. And um, 20 years ago, no, almost 30 years ago now, uh, yeah, next year will be 30 years. We produced a book called Organizing for Power and Empowerment with Scott Wilson, uh, which is the prelude to this new book uh, that Joan and I have written. Um, we started in talking in 2016 after the election of Donald Trump, frankly, about the fact that there was a lot of organizing on the left going on um, and it wasn't getting any attention, uh, wasn't getting drawing any attention from the media or the politicians or anyone. And we wanted to tell that story. So we wrote to the Columbia Press and said, hey, we'd like to tell the story of this new generation of organizing. Would you be interested? And they jumped on it. And five years later, uh, in January of 2023, we finally um, published the book. Excellent. Uh, Joan, what should, what should we know about you? Well, uh, thank you, Stephen. I've been, I've been organizing nationally and New York and in New York city and New York state for many years. And in the past, uh, in, in also as part of my work over these years, I've been writing, teaching and training and just building the field through lots of different, uh, approaches for as long as I've, uh, you know, as long as I've been in this work. And the stories that we lift up in the book are, are really what drew me to the project and to the, the, the opportunity to work with Jackie to write the book. This organizing work that we document is going on in every part of our country, every city, every state, every suburban and rural, rural community. It's really foundational to our democracy. And it's a story that I feel like those of us who are engaged in it really know very well, but it's really still quite under the radar. So when we started our research, in the aftermath of the 2016 elections, we started that telling that story had new urgency for me. Despite many, many years of being in this work and having many different roles, it really became clear to us as we took on this project, and we document this in the book, that many people were taking to the streets in the aftermath of the 2016 election. But for those of us who do this work and are close to this work, 
we knew that organizing organizations, leadership development, and power building were really behind all of this work, and that would then they would continue to grow and be galvanized by it. So that the you know as organizing was ramping up and evolving to meet the politics and the narrative of division that was so uh, pervasive after the 2016 election, the opportunity to, to engage with organizers and help to tell their stories through this book was a, a really powerful opportunity. So before we turn our attention to those stories, and maybe we'll go back to to you, Jackie. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about uh, tell us a little bit about methodology? What are the organizations or the range of organizations you talk to? How did you identify them? What kind of work are they engaged in? What's the geographic variation? What should we know, sort of, if we want to call it the data set? What should we know about about who you who you talk to and, and how you you gathered information from them? Right. Thanks, Stephen. So, um, as I said before, the we took a uh, the foundation, the good bones of the first book, uh, which was also a study of organizations, and tried to uh, re-examine the questions we had then and to see whether they were still relevant or not. We used 13 key informants, people who were executive directors of foundations that funded organizing, uh, some people from the training centers, some people from um, labor unions, et cetera, to like give us advice on what should we be asking today. And we developed a set of research questions, which were both the traditional questions and then looking at some of the innovations. We then sought to build a sample of organizations, we had two criteria. One is that they had to be in existence for at least two years. And the second being they had to have a person designated, at least one person designated to do organizing. Um, and the third uh, uh, criteria was that they had to be uh, an organization that was committed to leadership development. So they were base building organizations rather than lobbying organizations or mobilizing organizations. All of these organizations had to be base building. We then set about uh, getting um, recommendations for people. We developed a list of 43 organizations around the country this time because technology allows you a greater reach. Um, and we wrote to all of them and asked them to be a part of this study, talking to them, explaining to them what it was. And 20 of them agreed to be interviewed by that us. We then developed a uh, survey questionnaire that sort of that asked them to respond to some organizational characteristics, like how much funding, what level of organizing did they do, what was their, what did their uh, board look like, what did their constituency look like, et cetera, um, and then developed an interview format. Um, we ended up, these 20 organizations, what's important to know is that they're all over the country. They represent great geographic diversity. Um, they're organizing in all kinds of issue areas, uh, immigration, worker protection, housing, um, uh, farm workers, um, I'm trying to think what else right now. Um, one is a labor union, teachers union, um, uh, in all the major uh, mass incarceration, all the different 
uh, areas that you ex can name that are sort of hot button issues today. And they are all in, they are in cities, some of the biggest cities like New York and LA, um, and some of the uh, uh, bluest states and reddest states, some in the most rural areas and in small towns. So we really think even though it's not a representative sample, it really shows you the gamut of organizing that's going on today. Great. And Kieran, I want to give you an opportunity to jump in and, and see if there's anything else you want to add into that, but maybe also ask you, for people who may not be familiar, uh, talk to us just a little bit about uh, organizers, leaders, and members, and how you sort of think about the the genuine kind of the constituencies of the kinds of organizations that you're talking about here. Yeah, that's a great question, and and it's something that as we looked at how the how the work has evolved over time, we started to notice both some continued similarities and some differences. So organizations, the organizations, social action organizations, are distinguished by being led by their membership. So the leaders, the people who are directly impacted by the injustices that the organization is addressing, are those who are determining what issues the organization is going to work on, how it will do its work how it's structured, they're the decision makers, and they hire a staff to help them to move forward their agenda. And one of the things, so in the roles of the different roles of organizations, there tend to be anyone who's really engaged in the work, who's part of the base that's directly impacted by the issue, whether it's immigration, mass incarceration, the range of issues that Jackie just laid out, they have the potential to be a member of the organization, to be included in the organization in some way, and to develop their leadership, to develop the skills and the capacity to act, and not to make the assumption that they're just going to be moved through actions or sent to a rally, but they are actually going to develop the skills to uh, analyze an issue and move an issue through a through a process in order to get what the community needs, whether it's policy reform or or whatever the agenda might be. And the staff are those who are paid, paid roles in the organization who have developed the infrastructure, they developed the, they raised the money, they, you know, work with, work with uh, the members and the leaders. One of the things that we, what we, one of the things that we heard when we talked to these organizations is that like back when Jackie and I were first getting started in this work, and we talk about this in the book, there's like a bright line, you're a member or you're a leader. And I was actually trained to go to a community that was not my own and organize people for power, right? And the evolution that one of the one of the things that we found that has really evolved in the organizations is they are much more likely to be staffed by people who are also directly impacted by the issues that the organization addresses. They're more likely to be people of color. They're more likely to have experienced the issues directly. Uh, we spoke to an organizer, for example, from a group called Vocal New York, who which organizes around mass incarceration issues and, and to the AIDS epidemic. And he had himself had been identified by an organizer. He was living in a shelter. He was impacted directly by the issues. Um, his name is Juwanza Williams, and he is now the lead organizer of this you know, amazing organization called Vocal New York. It was just in the news around um, the, uh, the changes in New York State around bail reform, where there's a lot of leadership from that organization uh, that, is, that is coming forward. And so we heard, you know, many, many more examples like that of the of the of the kind of the momentum within organizations being not around bright lines, but around lots more opportunity 
for people to form the kinds of organizations that they need today that represent the organization, give opportunity to people who want to do these skills, whether it's professionally or on a volunteer basis. So that is uh, that was a really exciting development that we that we that we uh, that we learned about and that we document in the stories of the organizers. Terrific. Uh, so I'm going to resist the the habit of just like bouncing back and forth between the two of you and let you sort of jump in as you see fit for the next question. But you write in the book, uh, particularly in thinking about changes from that first edition uh, to the present about what you discover to be fairly common theories of change that these organizations seem to hold. Uh, so first, for, for listeners who may not be familiar with that language, what are we talking about when we talk about a theory of change? And what did you see by way of commonalities among these organizations? Well, theory of change uh, is, is really how, you, how the organization believes change happens and why. And, it's, and there are underlying assumptions that form how it is that the organization develops its analysis of how change happens. And again, we saw lots of similarities and then some, some overlays of difference to how this has really evolved. But what we did also see is that there's a lot of commonality among the organizations. So I would say, I think we would say that the, that the movement and the approach has, has changed, but the organizations still share a lot of commonalities. Uh, and we document them in the book, but I can just summarize them briefly. And then Jackie, if you could if you want to jump in. So the primary mission is really to build power among the people who are most impacted, as I just described in the development of these member-led organizations. And it and the organization needs to be built by the people who are, as, as we heard many organizers refer to this as closest to the pain or a group called Song, um, the Southerners on New Ground, talks about as being uh, closest to the fire. And so the organizations talk about those who were most directly impacted are the ones who really know best what they need in terms of the solutions, and they are trained and supported and galvanized the organization by the organization to achieve that. The role of leadership in the roles uh, the, the roles of leadership in social or action organizations also informs their understanding of how change happens. You, the, we can talk about groups being organizations being leaderful is a, is a concept that we heard a lot from organizations that there are many leaders, there's not just one leader. Uh, that has long been the case in community organizing and social action, but we saw that again, moving throughout the whole construction of the organization, not just from the volunteer leaders, but also in the staff, the board, the overall leadership of the groups. Um, and there's a you know, broad commitment to base building, to identifying and, and recruiting members, and using social media and communication, narrative development to drive the work of the organization. And I think another part of the theory of change, and, and we really, um, I would say, investigated this pretty closely because in 2016, following Occupy, following in, in, the, in the kind of the, um, the momentum around the Black Lives Matter movement, lots of like public display of activism, we really explicitly asked the question is, what is the role of an organization? Are, do organizations still matter? And what we heard was they, they matter more than ever and that you really need an infrastructure that's in place to be able to respond to and drive these moments of opportunity. And so the theory of change has really strengthened, I think, around, around those concepts. Um, if it's just, to, I don't want to get us too deep in the weeds, but but hearing you you talk about that, the the sort of the 
the general sense of the necessity for organization to to fulfill these goals is, of course, something that is a longstanding debate or argument in the social movement literature, right? I'm sort of, I associate it with the break of Pivot and Cloward and George Wiley and the National Welfare Rights Organization. Wiley insisted they needed a form to move from all of this sort of active, disruptive mobilization to institutionalize that. And Pivot and Cloward say, nope, that's where you lose your source of power by creating organizations. Clearly, the people that you're talking to come down on the George Wiley rather than the Pivot and Cloward side of that debate. Is that fair to say, Jackie? Yes. Um, so it's interesting that you say that. We talk about that a lot in the book, about that uh, that split. Um, the, the fact is that it, it isn't just George Wiley. It also looks at the effectiveness of the union movement and the civil rights movement, which came out of black churches. They, the most effective organizing movements that we've seen in this country came out of very structured, disciplined organizations. And actually, I co-taught with Richard Cloward for many years at Columbia, and he even, and we wrote an article together, and he actually admitted to me once that my argument on organizations was actually better. So, communication. <laughs> hey, this is good. We're breaking news. Oh, we're not breaking news if you wrote an article about it. Uh, um, so, so one one of the many things that that I found interesting as you chronicle what you discovered by way of differences between sort of the organizing 25 years ago and what's going on today is as Joan, I think you already mentioned, uh, many more people of color directly involved in leadership positions, uh, many more women with genuine leadership roles and, and guiding these organizations. And the thing that I thought most interesting and perhaps most useful for us to talk about is many fewer of what we would describe as single issue organizations, right? So it's not just that they're that 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 uh, the this organization is working on immigration issues and only immigration issues, but they are recognizing that their members who may be confronting challenges around immigration status also have multiple identities and are parents and are workers and are students or teachers, and that these organizations seem to be doing a much better job of recognizing that complexity of people's identities and trying to build power through that. Can you talk a little bit about, about how you see that play out and say some more about that? Of course. Uh, you know, I think there's a couple of things in, in, in inherent in what you just said, Stephen. And I would say there's there's two ways that we lift up in the book to look at this. And one is based on the work of Kim, Kim, Kimberly Crenshaw around intersectionality, sexism, patriarchy, and racism, you know, combining to create pervasive injustice, right? There's literature and a and a um, and, a, and a, a strong foundation for that perspective. And what we frame out in the book is the concept of intersectional injustice, that people are getting hit on all levels. And so that the response of the organization, again, because it is of, by, and for, the people that have to live with what that organization does, I don't think this is like coming from a theory. This is actually coming from people's lived experience. And we heard it over and over and over again. So I think the concept of intersectional injustice is really drives the work of these organizations and what really requires them to be multi-issue. 
Uh, and the other is the concept of like, it's not either or, it's both and. And we talk a lot about that in the book. Um, and we hear we heard it, you know, in many, many different ways from these organizations that it's everything has to have a both and approach. You can't be one thing or the other. You constantly have to think about how things join. Jackie, you want to add anything to that or, or any, say, examples that you think are particularly telling or interesting you might want to share? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I would add that even in the most um, homogeneous white communities, the organizers are trying to find ways to make the organizations and the organizing multiracial. And that's very important. Uh, and it, an organization in Iowa, for example, in sort of farm country, Iowa, very white, um, they built relationships with the Native American community around Native foods, and they built uh, relationships with the Black communities in the cities around uh, gardens and uh, producing food in gardens and feeding people from there. So they're always thinking, how do we make this about intersectional injustice, even in the places that normally wouldn't think about it? Uh, and in, in the organizations that that you became familiar with, uh, those those were not sort of window dressing or merely rhetorical gestures toward that. That was a genuine commitment to building broader based coalitions. Not at all. I mean, I think about the organization again in rural North Carolina, which was building their listening sessions on anti-racist uh, ideas. Um, so they were walking around list talking to people in rural white rural North Carolina asking about race. That's how deep it goes. Very impressive work. And I think another example is the work that we uh, document in the book uh, in wa organizing Walmart workers, where they're using a lot of technology to, you know, whether it's Facebook or social media or any apps to engage or to, you know, to engage people with one another, engage them with the organization in addition to their live interactions. And then facilitating all of this work across all of these platforms to to bridge division and to get people talking to one another and understanding their their commonality. So it is really, I mean, we've heard people over and over again say, this is the hardest thing we do. Yeah. Is is sort of building those connections and and making real that commitment to broad-based participation and inclusion. Absolutely. You can imagine having these conversations in places like rural Indiana and rural because this is actually the Trump base that they're trying to organize, but they're trying to do the kinds of conversations, dialogue, reflection that allows them to think in new ways. And if if memory serves, you do talk in the book a bit about uh, what political scientists call deep canvassing, right? About sort of, uh, you talk a little bit about, about the organizations you see doing, see doing that kind of work and what the challenges and opportunities of that are? I think probably the best example that we could point to would be uh, Down Home North Carolina, the group that, uh, that the organization that Jackie just referenced. They really started after 2016 
with a New York trained organizer going to uh, live near her, be closer to her where her family lived. She didn't grow up in North Carolina, but was going back to an area where she had family and some connections. And, you know, through a, a, a through the work of this organization, started engaging with a first called deep listening. So that is really like, I think they talked to something, again, if memory serves, like something like three or 4,000 people and really sat on porches with people and talked with them about their experiences. In the evolution of organizing, we would talk about being, you know, I was trained again, be at a door for no more than one minute, you know, like knock on a door. Are you with me? Are you not with me? Try to get their name and move on. And that has really changed because people really need to talk and they really need to talk through a, through a, a cacophony of influences and, and media and pain, pain, real pain that people would hear on people's porches and at their doorsteps in rural North Carolina about what it is that they could do to make their world better and to make their lives better. And so from the process of, of deep listening and really hearing what the issues are, the, the role of deep canvassing then comes in to say, okay, what's the issue? And now how do we press on that issue so that we can, again, bring more people together around what's important to us as a community, but not everybody understands in quite the same way. And so the, the combination of these open listening sessions and then the deep canvassing to move an, an issue a, an issue forward, uh, that's a really good example of the, the work in Down Home, North Carolina. And we really credit the work of the People's Action Institute. We also talked to George Gale, who was then the director of People's Action. And a lot of that work has come out of and been and been supported uh, by that organization, but by many others. And so, you know, that's definitely I think it's it, it's both the technique, but it is also the, the 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 shift to it takes time. You know, you really have to be in relationship and. Uh, most of us are really isolated and in our own pain, and we hear that in so much in marginalized community. These organizations have really, really stepped up to really hit people where they are in their in their isolation and their self blame about their situations and about their conditions, and give them a way to to fight back. And this is presumably the space where people who may think of themselves as on opposite sides of the political ideological spectrum may come to understand that they actually share very common concerns and have more in common than perhaps things that divide them, right, in the best case scenario. Absolutely. And we were in, in North Carolina, the example that we cite in the book that they shared with us was a was the, the cost of a like a, a, a charge to a, the energy company that for their like pollution, I don't remember the exact details, I don't have them at my fingertips, but uh, passing that on to the consumer. So it doesn't matter where you are in the political spectrum. If you're, you know, if you're barely making it and you have to pay more for your energy costs because of, you know, corporate malfeasance, then, you know, we, we got something in common. <laughs> so so um, as, we, as we work our way toward, toward concluding, I, I don't need to tell either of you that we live in what can sometimes feel like this extraordinarily fraught and challenging moment in the United States right now. And I don't quite know what the words would be that would accurately characterize where we are. But it, but it feels as if we are sometimes on the precipice. Um, given, given what you know about the work that is going on around the country, should we feel hopeful that we will emerge out the end of this? Uh, are you feeling hopeful? Talk to us a little bit about that as we conclude, if you would. 
Yeah. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah. Yeah, I think I am hopeful. Um, I think that the organizers know what needs to be done. I, I feel a lot of faith in them. They know we have to scale up, and uh, particularly in red states and rural areas, we need to build that base in order to change things. I think they all know that we need a better megaphone and a different megaphone to get to people since our uh, since people are so divided by social media and they only hear what they uh, what what the social media gets to them, they know that they have to do better at getting to people and changing their minds. They need better narratives and they need their own communication systems. And I think they're doing that. I think they know that they need funding that's not um, issue specific. So they need funders to, to give them the money and let them do their organizing. And I think funders are responding to that. I think networks are loosening up in many ways that they needed to loosen. Um, you know, it used to be that you joined one network and you could never belong to any other. We saw much less of that. We saw organizations that belong to many networks and work with all of the networks around different issues. And I think we have seen through, we don't know it because the media doesn't explain it to us, but um, we've seen successes. Um, what happened in the Georgia Senate races was definitely the result of six organizations in Georgia. Um, what happened in uh, Chicago and in LA in the teacher's strike was definitely um, because of the work there. What happened? And then the mayor's race in yeah, Chicago. The mayor's race. Which, which then, comes out of that, yeah. Right, exactly. And then in Wisconsin, the most recent uh, victory. So at beating Stephen King was the organizations in Iowa. So we do have uh, a lot of uh, success. And we think these new strategies are going to increase them. And I'd just like to end, Stephen, by reading you something that Felicia Griffin, who was then organizing for Power Shift Action, uh, told us. Uh, because I think it is definitely the way I uh, think about this. Um, let's see. She said to us, I think that men of, many of us in the sector believe we've got to have an ideology shift and create our new North Star, a new American dream, dream to bring communities together. It's only going to take the action of the communities when enough is enough and that we must demand our democracy back. We're going to have to fight for it. I think we understand that it's the people and that when we've done everything else, we've done the data, we've done it all, and those if those things still aren't working, what else is there to do but to organize? Lovely. Joan, I'll give you the last thought. Uh, should, should, should I believe what Jackie is telling me and I be, be hopeful and optimistic that, that we understand the challenges in front of us, but there are people doing the work that it's going to get us over the hill? I don't think that there is any substitute for hearing directly from the organizers and the leaders about what they're doing, why they're doing, and what they're accomplishing. 
So to me, I can't read these stories and feel anything but hopeful. It, it, and I believe that, that even after so many years and seeing so many challenges, these organizations are finding new ways to innovate and really meet the moment and meet the challenge. And, and you know, their words, it, we really tried very hard in our, in our presentation of this, of this moment to really lift up their words. So I would encourage anybody who's depressed to read their words <laughs> because it's hard to it's hard to walk away and not feel like somebody is out there fighting the good fight. You are listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Jackie Mondros and Joan Minieri, authors of Organizing for Power and Empowerment, The Fight for Democracy, new out from Columbia University Press. Jackie, Joan, thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope folks will go out and take them at their word, get a copy of the book, and learn what people are doing, get inspiration from it, and look for ways for they themselves to get involved and join that fight. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you.